It's Friday, August 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The chicken sandwich wars are over, for now. Popeyes had the most successful product launch in their history with their new chicken sandwich. All it took was a couple of tweets between them and rival Chick-fil-A and the wars started, leading to long lines and eventually selling out completely. Kate Taylor, retail correspondent for Business Insider, joins us for the chicken sandwich craze and also how Popeyes employees hated life during the past two weeks. Next, the Justice Department's Inspector General has concluded that former FBI Director James Comey violated FBI policies in his handling of memos documenting private conversations with President Trump, which led to the appointment of a special counsel. He broke the rules by giving a friend one of the memos with directions to leak it to the media. Olivia Beavers, national security reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Finally, what happens when you don't pay a hospital bill? About 43 million Americans have unpaid medical debt, typically from seeing out-of-network doctors, hospital stays, and ambulance rides. Olga Kazan, writer at The Atlantic, joins us for some of the lengths that hospitals and debt collectors go to to get you to pay up. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I don't care who makes this chicken. It could be Popeyes, Winn-Dixie, this place. Be the first to try the new chicken sandwich from Popeyes. Not at Popeyes, right here at Sweet Dixie Kitchen. Joining us now is Kate Taylor, retail correspondent at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thank you for having me. It was the most successful product launch in Popeye's history. We're talking about their chicken sandwich. There was this whole chicken sandwich wars that was going on between Popeye's and Chick-fil-A. A bunch of other fast food restaurants started getting into the game, too, because nobody wanted to be left behind. But it was just a crazy two weeks that ended with Popeye's saying they're sold out of their chicken sandwiches in a run that was supposed to last them until the end of September Kate, tell us a little bit about all of the craziness that's been happening surrounding this chicken sandwich. It has been truly wild. So what happened was earlier in August, Popeye's said it's going to have a classic chicken sandwich that's going to add to the menu. They launched the new sandwich. People kind of start trying it and the response is really, really good. But then it's about a week later that things really get out of control when Popeyes and Chick-fil-A kind of have a little bit of a Twitter spat that just erupts into everyone debating about what the best chicken sandwich is. And that really is what propelled this whole thing. Chick-fil-A, actually, they've been hitting super high marks. I think they became the the most favorite fast food restaurant not too long ago, according to some surveys and studies. Um, So Chick-fil-A has been kind of sitting at the top. And they sent this tweet to Popeyes basically saying, thanks for mimicking the original, something to that effect. And <laughs> it, it's it's actually a super fun story. All the people at Popeyes gathered in a conference room. They decided, how are we going to respond? It was like all hands on deck. It took 15 minutes for them to craft what they were going to say. And they responded back with, y'all good? And then, boom, everybody started going crazy. As you said, the conversation started going from there. Which one's best? Everybody's fighting on Twitter. And it started these chicken sandwich wars. It was such a perfect response from Popeye's just to kind of have Chick-fil-A be doing this subtweet where they aren't mentioning Popeye's by name even. But it's clear that they're talking about Popeye's. So Popeye's is able to immediately kind of be like, we see you. And people love that from Popeye's because like Chick-fil-A has been around for a while. They've had, they invented the chicken sandwich, as they say. 
to have Popeyes as this kind of upstart willing to be like, okay, like we saw what you did and we're willing to do you one better is it's perfect for Twitter. And I think that people love to kind of have these chains actually like seem to be fighting on Twitter where everyone can take a side on this issue and keep debating it, which is what happened extensively last week. Chick-fil-A did it to themselves. They really just helped Popeye's elevate this whole thing uh, to crazy levels. So let's talk about how crazy things got because there was lines out the door at every, pretty much every Popeye's location. They were selling out early on in the day. This whole chicken sandwich run was supposed to last them till the end of September. And here we are just earlier this week, they announced they're completely sold out and they have to get a whole another line of chicken suppliers so they can start the whole process all over again. All across the country, locations were selling out after only having them in stores for less than two weeks. It was amazing to kind of see. And then the downside of that is these poor workers who are in the store kind of being paid a little bit above minimum wage, not making a ton of money, are dealing with these angry customers who have been hearing about the chicken sandwich. They show up. It's not there. And they take it out on the workers. Yeah. So while everyone is at first so excited about this, it kind of turns dark for employees, especially pretty quickly. You spoke to a bunch of Popeye's employees and they were ready to quit. Uh, They were not having a good time. Tell us about that. One of the most interesting people I spoke to was this woman who was working in a New Jersey location. Um, It's kind of as things are at their fever pitch, it's just getting out of control. She said that she just walked out in the middle of making two chicken sandwiches, just put the sandwiches down. was like, I quit. I can't do this anymore. And just like walked out the door because these customers were yelling. They were angry. The crowds were out of control. She was like, I'm not making enough money to deal with this. Like I can work at a different chain that I don't have to deal with these crowds of angry people yelling at me trying to get this chicken sandwich. So basically people were just working super long hours dealing with crowds of people and it wasn't an enjoyable situation for them. It was a pretty terrible situation, really. My favorite example from your article was an 18-year-old Popeye's crew member who said, I I was working like a slave in the back, prepping the buns with pickles and spicy mayo, and that they estimated they made about 600 sandwiches on a Saturday during an 11-hour shift. That's crazy. This is a hard situation. These workers are going through a lot. And it's it's not an easy job for them to be on their feet all day making these chicken sandwiches, um, especially because they are responsible for if this is a success or not. If they're putting out chicken sandwiches that aren't up to standards, people wouldn't have been so excited to try them. Exactly. Uh, okay, the last question I have, because your office there at Business Insider did do taste tests for the Popeye's chicken sandwich and the Chick-fil-A one. Who's the winner? Oh, man. I Popeye's had a really good chicken sandwich. I have to give it to them. It was actually, the hype was warranted. Um, I also love Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich. I think Chick-fil-A's is good for more of an everyday thing. It's not as decadent as Popeye's, but if you're going for kind of treat yourself, really enjoy a chicken sandwich, I don't think you can top Popeye's. That is a very good sandwich. Kate Taylor, retail correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I asked a friend of mine to share the content of the memo with a reporter. I asked him to because I thought that might prompt the appointment of a special counsel. Joining us now is Olivia Beavers, national security reporter at The Hill. 
Thanks for joining us, Olivia. Thanks for having me, Oscar. So a watchdog report came out and said that James Comey, the former FBI director, violated FBI policies in his handling of memos documenting private conversations that he had with President Donald Trump. This was all in the weeks before that he was fired as director of the Bureau. Tell us what happened. What was in this report? So this is an 83-page report from Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who's this well-respected independent investigator with the Justice Department. And he went through these allegations that Comey had leaked classified information, which came from the Republican side. Well, he did not find that Comey leaked classified information. He found that he mishandled classified information by putting them in a memo that he sent to an outside friend. And he also found that he just mishandled his decisions in leaking memos that ultimately made it to the press even after he was out of the bureau. So this is sort of a highly critical review of Comey's decisions. In the report, when they talked to Comey, Comey described sort of how he knew that he was in this position because he was FBI director, but he couldn't separate himself from the position and the man who he was. So when he said he felt like he was writing personal recollections, not FBI records, he thought he was basically not violating FBI policies. But Horowitz said, that's clearly not the case. You signed an employee agreement saying that the records you make here at the Bureau are FBI records. So at issue are the seven memos that he wrote between January 2017 and April 2017. These are all conversations that he had with the president. And we know about these already. We've heard about them. Part of this whole thing was that he did give one of the memos to a friend and he did instruct him to leak it to the New York Times. And that's kind of called attention to his decision to go to the press. Um, And Horowitz talked to other top FBI officials, and they all expressed disappointment in this decision. I think what also stood out in the report is, as you said, he wrote seven memos. The first one he wrote, it didn't leave the bureau. But he started writing other memos that followed very different protocols. And he decided one was an FBI record, one was his personal recollections. And the way he sort of gave this different treatment has also come under scrutiny. And when he decided to catalog some of the stuff and then leak it, he basically became a major player in leading to the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. And he's been open about that. He said that he wanted to make some of these details public so that there would be the appointment of a special counsel. And in the end, obviously, we know what happened there. Uh, you know, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel, so it kind of worked in that way. But the FBI obviously didn't agree with that. They said that there was other protocols, there was other recourses he had to be able to make it known that he thought there should be a special counsel appointed. Certainly. And they said there were other steps he could have taken while he was holding copies of these memos in his personal home and his personal safe. He was supposed to alert the FBI that he was holding them. He had Secret Service agents go to his house to remove FBI materials. And he did not, which he did not say anything, which Horowitz found, quote, particularly concerning. Because of this action, he has fueled further allegations by Republicans that the origins of this Russia investigation were politically motivated, that the top brass of the FBI and Justice Department did not act appropriately. They did so out of a bias against President Trump. And this is going to figure very easily into the president's attacks on the FBI and the entire investigation, which he obviously he called the witch hunt. From the report, they did say that Comey set 
a dangerous example for over 35,000 current FBI employees by doing this, by kind of skirting Mm -hmm. the rules. So that's really harsh against the guy who has been kind of in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons for the past two years, really. It's a scathing review of him, but whether or not it sticks in this environment where people kind of quickly move on from the large dents and reputation is kind of remains to be seen. Right. And he's a private citizen now. He's a private citizen now. So, I mean, like you said, uh, this will blow over very quickly and people will forget about it pretty soon. What's been the response so far? How is, I know James Comey sent out a few tweets with regards to this report. Comey's tweets have just, they were not apologetic and said he went after his critics and said, for those of you who have defamed me, you should come to me and apologize for the lies you spread, which was clearly directed at Republicans and the president for claiming that he illegally leaked classified information. Republicans, on the other hand, have celebrated it. They're saying this was misconduct that they knew about all along and that they've been saying it needed to be thoroughly investigated. So they've been commending Horowitz for his findings. And they also say Comey is one of several who are probably going to be brought down in the rest of Horowitz's report, which is supposed to come out basically any day now. And that is investigating the decision makers who were involved in the origins of the Russia probe. Olivia Beavers, national security reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. patient will go into a hospital and not realize that the doctors who are working on them are out of network, often because they might be unconscious, as Jocelyn was because she was under for getting her heart transplant. And then they wake up and find, oh, well, the anesthesiologist who worked on you was out of network. So that happened to her multiple times with several different doctors. So that's how she got to that big $50,000 bill. Joining us now is Olga Kazan, writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Olga. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about what happens when you don't pay a hospital bill. About 43 million Americans have unpaid medical debt. Half of all overdue debt on Americans' credit reports is for medical expenses. And a lot of it comes when you do stuff with out-of-network doctors. You might have thought they were in your network, but they weren't. So there's that. There's hospital stays or ambulance rides. All that stuff can add up pretty high. In the article that you wrote, you kind of profile a horror story of someone that went through this whole process with the hospital trying to get money for the unpaid debt. Debt collectors were contacting this person. It's a pretty crazy ordeal. Olga, help us out. Start us with uh, what happened to Jocelyn Cravat. In 2009, Jocelyn, who was a 32-year-old woman, she thought she was coming down with the flu. She was just feeling kind of sick. Instead, she was admitted to the hospital, and she ended up having this problem called giant cell myocarditis, which is a major inflammation of the heart. And she essentially found out that she was going to have to have a heart transplant. And she did. It was successful. So she did have her heart transplant. She was in New York at the time. And a bunch of different doctors worked on her. And she actually was transferred between two different hospitals. So that was all well and good. But after she got out of the hospital, she returned to her house to find that she was billed by different doctors and different practices a total of $50,000. And one of the crazy things was that she was unconscious Parts of the time, you know, she was going through a real, a serious medical issue. And some of the doctors that she ended up getting treated by were out of network. And that's why some of the bills were so high. So this is something called balance billing, which is 
where a patient will go into a hospital and not realize that the doctors who are working on them are out of network, often because they might be unconscious, as Jocelyn was because she was under for getting her heart transplant. And then they wake up and find, oh, well, the anesthesiologist who worked on you was out of network. So that happened to her multiple times with several different doctors. So that's how she got to that big $50,000 bill. And then one of the craziest parts about this, because the hospital is trying to collect on the debt, sometimes they pass it off to a debt collector. She actually got a LinkedIn request from a debt collector trying to make contact, I'm assuming, just to establish that contact and then maybe ask for, hey, you know, you owe us some money kind of thing. So the LinkedIn request was sort of the cherry on top, but pretty soon after she had incurred this debt, different debt collectors started calling her and writing letters on behalf of all these different doctors that worked on her who were out of network saying, you need to pay up or else we're going to take legal action. She was kind of struggling to juggle it all while recovering from her heart transplant. And then after about a year of this sort of like juggling these calls and letters and things, she got a LinkedIn request and she opened it to find that it was actually from one of the debt collectors. (laughs) Let's take a quick step back. How do hospitals traditionally try to collect on on these hospital bills? I know they do sell the debt off sometimes to these debt collectors, but what's the traditional pathway? So kind of like the first thing they'll do is sort of try like a soft approach. They'll be like, did you lose your bill? Do you want to see if you qualify for charity care? They might ask that, but they don't always. They'll kind of like try different ways of getting you to pay kind of nicely. But then if you're not responding to those methods, then like as one expert put it to me, it'll basically just get more stressful. They might employ a collections agency and the collections agency might start pinging your credit reports. It might be sent to an attorney to enforce collection. Eventually, the collectors might actually try to sue you. And that's when they can actually garnish your wages or put a lien on your property. Talk to us a little bit about some of these debt collectors and when the hospitals finally sell off the debt, uh, because that was very interesting to me. A lot of times they end up settling for way under what the original debt was. In my head, I was reading through this and it just struck me. Then why are the hospital bills so expensive to begin with? But tell us about selling the debt and how that could impact all of this. So let's say the hospital tries to collect on the debt and they're just not getting anywhere. You're not able to pay and the collectors aren't really successful. They might then sell the debt to this kind of company called the debt buyer. And the debt buyer basically is just like, look, we'll take all of this debt off your hands for you to the hospital. And all they're trying to do is collect slightly more than they paid. So they paid whatever, 20 cents on the dollar. They're going to try to collect 30 cents on the dollar. So in some ways, it's better to have a debt buyer after you because you kind of owe a little bit less that way because they're just trying to make a profit. On the other hand, when this debt changes hands, they lose a lot of information about how you incurred the debt, how what you actually had done at the hospital. So you're not really negotiating with like a kindly doctor anymore. You're negotiating with this like anonymous company that really just wants your money. (laughs) Are there laws on the books protecting people from this kind of these type of situations? So actually in New York and in eight other states, there are laws that protect patients from these kinds of surprise bills when you end up having an out-of-network doctor that wasn't within your control. You didn't choose to see that doctor. And Congress is actually considering something similar, but there are still a lot of patients getting these kinds of bills. And for this story, I spoke with several patients who were having their wages garnished. They weren't able to like use their name in the story because they were nervous, but this is still very much a problem that's happening. Eight states is in all the states, and the, the congressional thing hasn't really been finalized yet. Olga Kazan, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter. 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.